Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 39. Genesis 39. Growing up in the 70s and the 80s, we didn't have a whole lot of television channels. I know for the younger generation that's just shocking, but uh, you had about eight, ten channels, and that was about all you had. And so on a Saturday afternoon, uh, if you paid attention at all and watched anything on a Saturday afternoon, you usually came across ABC's Wide World of Sports. And uh, I remember as a kid that uh, in the afternoon there, they would, it was the, the wide world of sports. And you can remember the opening where you have the uh, statement about the thrill of victory. And then I always waited for the agony of defeat to watch that guy just launch off the side of the, uh, the uh, ski ramp there that he somehow got off of, which is very difficult to do, but did and, and that. And uh, he survived. Uh, that was the good thing about it. I don't think they would have showed it if he hadn't, but uh, the, the agony of defeat. But I remember watching that uh, as a uh, young person, and oftentimes they would have just weird sports, you know, ones you never thought about, you know, these guys jumping off 100-foot cliffs, and you're just like, no, that's not uh, an idea of fun. But something they regularly showed was uh, people who were doing mountain climbing, uh, sometimes they'd show people who would go out and uh, they would spend a whole show on people climbing Devil's Tower out in Wyoming. You go, what's that? Well, it's a sheer-faced uh, cliff uh, mountain, basically, that sticks out of the ground in the middle of Wyoming. And uh, you'd have people that would be free climbing up the side of this. And they would be showing how they would get from one place to another. And you'd have the tension, are they going to make it or not, and the like. But the one that I always uh, was fascinating but never had any desire to do was uh, they would oftentimes show people trying to climb Mount Everest. I mean, if you want the peak of challenges in mountain climbing, climb that. And all the process that these individuals had to go to to get to the top of the world, as uh, Mount Everest is, is called, being the tallest spot, I mean, they would have to establish base camps. They would have to get uh, people hired on, the Sherpas there in the local region, to, to help them out as they would try and get up the side of that mountain. Weather, which uh, was harder to predict back then. It's a little easier to see what's coming nowadays with all the satellites. But back then, they uh, never really sure what the weather is going to be. And that sometimes uh, conflicted with the plans that they were trying to figure out how to get up the mountainside. The thing that always made me a little queasy was the fact that sometimes they had to cross these uh, in the ice fields climbing up there, these uh, crevices or crevasses, uh, however you want to say the term, but they would take these ladders and just kind of flip the ladder over and uh, they would walk across on the ladder and it's hundreds of feet down in between the, the, these gaps in the ice. And I was just like, no, that would have, you know, I would have turned around and gone back home and said, I, I saw the tallest peak in the world, not that I ever climbed it. But these people do this. They uh, spend nights in the cold. They would sometimes spend a couple days in tents because some snowstorm came through. Sometimes they would realize that the path that they were taking would not uh, be the best of paths, so they had to turn around, retrace their steps down to another location, and go up a different way. 
But in the end, you would get there and uh, they'd see the pictures at the end. And here these individuals are uh, at the highest peak and they're looking around everything else that's around them. And they're taking pictures and, and uh, that. They're only able to stay there for uh, even just a couple of minutes because the oxygen level there is so uh, thin as far as being able to get any. You have to basically be on oxygen and the, the extremes there. But they get to the top of the world. They're accomplished this. They're, you, know, you, you, you feel the sense of joy that they get there. And all the trials and difficulties before are kind of forgotten, but uh, they never really show this. It always, <laughs> they have to get back down the hill again. Uh, but they kind of ended with that. You know, what, what we are looking at in the life of Joseph is an individual who is going to be, what we would say, on top of the world at the end of the story. But getting there is not going to be easy. It's going to be a very rugged path that Joseph's going to have to take. He's been promised back in Genesis chapter 37 uh, that through dreams that he will eventually rule over his family and even his parents. That they're going to bow down to him like some sort of ruler. And, and so that's there. But you look at Joseph's life until this point, he's got brothers that don't like him. In fact, they finally get rid of him by throwing him in a pit and selling him off. And, and uh, then you've got this story that we're going to look at today. Uh, several things that go on here. And from our perspective, he's never going to get there. What we're going to see in this passage, it is a comforting statement, is that throughout all of this, the Lord's with him. Okay, This is going to be accomplished not because Joseph is all that impressive, though he's going to do something today that's a pattern and example for us, but because the Lord is with him throughout this. But the, the, the trial and the difficulty, the rugged terrain that he's going to face today is one that is faced by all of us. It's temptation. And for us, what Joseph serves as is an example of how to resist temptation, not to fall into sin. And for us, if we were just to give a theme to this chapter, it's a familiar chapter because it's one that is uh, raised up as a, a showcase of an individual that does what's right. But the theme would just simply be this, resisting temptation may not yield immediate blessing. But it will keep you useful for the Lord's work. Resisting temptation may not immediately yield a blessing, but it will keep you useful for the Lord's work or the Lord's plan. And look at this. You start off the story in verses 1 through 6 that we read through already. You see this, that the Lord can use you to be a blessing to those around you. It doesn't matter where you're at. Those that are followers of God and those that are people of God can be used to bless those that have no idea even who God is. When you think about this story, it talks about the fact that here you have Joseph has a divine relocation. I use that terminology. He gets divinely relocated from Israel down to Egypt. Now he gets divinely relocated into a person's house by the name of Potiphar. 
Potiphar, understand it's not Pharaoh, it's different, okay? But uh, his name does have some of the rings of uh, what Pharaoh's name mean. Uh, you look at the name and it's got this idea of one who serves raw. You've got a man who, by his name, by his uh, name that he's known by, is an individual who's a complete pagan. Man who has no understanding who God is, is a worshiper of many gods. And here, Joseph is divinely relocated into this man's house. And as was common practice in that day, when you had a household of slaves, which Potiphar does seem to have, you go, why would he be able to have this? Well, he's the captain of the guard. He's the one responsible for the protection of Pharaoh. He's a man with great responsibility. You don't just put any person in the, to be the guard for the king, to protect the king. Uh, he's a trusted individual in Pharaoh's court. And as such, uh, he has uh, money and he has position and he has wealth. Joseph lands in this house, and as it was common back then, if you had Egyptian slaves in Egypt, you made them work out in the field. But if you got slaves from a foreign country, what you would have them do is work in the household. It's very common. They have records of this in Egypt still uh, that they've dug up from archaeological records that it was very typical that Egyptian servants, uh, people from Egypt that were slaves, they would work out in the field. But if you got somebody from in, in that a Asia, Middle East, we would say, uh, you would put them in charge of household responsibilities. And that's kind of what happens for Joseph. He lands in this job where he's not just merely toiling in the heat of Egypt out in the field. No, he's actually got a position of responsibility inside the house in the household of Potiphar. But you have the statement that is kind of a, a, a reminder. It's kind of the theological kicking off point. The starting point of the story is in verse number two, where it makes the statement this. And the Lord was with Joseph. Now, you see that term, L-O-R-D, all in caps. That's not a word normally used in the book of Genesis. It's used a whole lot in the book of Exodus because at that point, God says, this is my name. I want you to know me by it. This is the name that I have because I'm in relation to you. You call me by this name. That's what he's going to say to the nation of Israel in the first few chapters of Exodus. This is my name that is my personal name. I want you to remind yourself that Jehovah, meaning the I am, I'm the one who doesn't need anything, but I've chosen to have a relationship with you. In this story, the narrator just suddenly starts dropping this name. You have it five times in the verses, uh, the first five verses or six verses as you go through. And then at the end, in verses 21 through 23, you have it appear two more times. And then it only appears one more time through the whole rest of the story. Here you might think that Joseph has gotten dropped in here. And from a human perspective, you go, oh, woe is me. What horrible circumstances that he's been dropped into. And that's not to say it was enjoyable circumstances of being a slave. But from a human perspective, you just kind of go, he is, he is at the end of everything. At the end of the world, he's at the end of the chain as far as humanity. He's a slave. There's nothing going on here for him. But throughout the story, you see this. No, no, the Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord prospers him. The Lord takes care of him. And I think this name is used because Joseph is not just merely one who believes in a God, 
You know, he's got this mindset, okay, there's a God out there. He was monotheistic. He wasn't a, a pagan like the rest where he has a whole bunch of gods. No, Joseph is one who has a personal relationship with God. I mean, it's not just merely it's his God. This is one he has a personal relationship with. And so this is why this term, the Lord, is thrown in here. Because Joseph acts as if God still has a part in his life. That God really does exist, and we're going to see this later on in the story, but he's living life as if God's a part of it, and the, the narrator of the story just kind of goes, even though he's a slave in a foreign country under a foreign master who has no understanding of God, he is still one who has God with him. God hasn't abandoned him. God hasn't left him. God's right there. And what you see is that in the story is that the Lord prospers him. Verse 2, he was a prosperous man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. It's not talking prosperous in the sense of Potiphar. It's talking about a person who owns nothing. Doesn't have any possessions of his own. He's prospering. You say, how does that work out? Well, any project it seems like that Joseph gets, he's one who is solving problems and making things turn out better than when, when he got the project. Things are accomplished. Things are done. Uh, things that haven't been able to get done. And as you go through and watch this story, you find that in verse number three, the master recognizes this. This is an unusual slave because understand this. We're, we're like this too. But as slaves, do you go the extra mile? Do you do the extra things? No, you do the bare minimum to survive, and, and that's really all you want to put out. Joseph seems to be an individual who is one who's doing all these things that may have been extra and doing the things that are like this, but it's not just that. God is blessing him. God's doing this where people are seeing this individual's unique, unusual. He's not like everybody else that's here, part of the, the slave population there with Potiphar. He's a different kind of individual. And as you read through it, you ought to just kind of uh, sometime, if you've got a, a pen that you use for marking, you ought to go through and mark all the times it says all. I mean, here he is, everything he's a part of, it does well, everything, all of it. And what he does is that he is, uh, whatever he prospers in, verse 3, the Lord made him, uh, made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Everything he does, all of it, successful. So that in verse 4, you find this is that uh, Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had, he put in his hand. I mean, this the expanse here is he's responsible for everything. It gets to the point as we, we find this story that Potiphar doesn't really even care what's going on in his household because he knows Joseph's going to do a good job. Everything's in his hand. The only thing that Joseph doesn't worry about is the meal that he's about to serve. What, what Potiphar's going to eat, he doesn't worry about that. That's not his responsibility. Somebody else does that. But everything else in that household, Joseph has a hand in it. Joseph has a part in this. And many people in, in reading this passage just simply recognize this. Here you've got a man who is a descendant of Ham. He goes that, Potiphar. With a slave that's a descendant of Shem. It's a Hebrew by the name of Joseph. 
But here you have one who's in the line of Shem, who's in the line of Abraham, to whom God said that God in Genesis 12, 3, to Abraham about his descendants, that they would be a blessing to all the world. And here you have somebody of a completely different race and family, family line and everything else. Here, Joseph goes into this family as a slave, and just as a slave, he's able to make this man prosperous. The man's blessed by this. He sees it, that this individual's able to do this. And so it's just emphasizing the fact over and over again, though Joseph's a slave, he's a follower of God, and he's been put in horrible circumstances, he still is seeing God at work. And God uses him to be a blessing to the nations, just as he promised his grandfather, or great-grandfather. And so the story sets up that way, and you think, okay, I could live in an environment like that where everything's going well, there's nothing but blessing and good things going on and that type of thing, and the story is just getting set up for the real choice point. We start off just simply reminding ourselves that we can be a blessing. The Lord can use you to be a blessing to those around you. But you also have to be reminded of this as we look at verses 7 through 20. That the Lord, or excuse me, that you need to be aware of the Lord's presence to keep you from falling into sin. You need to be aware of the Lord's presence to keep you from falling into sin. And everything's going well. The Lord's prospering. He's using Joseph. He's with him. And then you have this little statement at the end of verse 6 that's the setup for the rest of the story. End of verse 6, it says this. It's just kind of an added statement, but it says this, that Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. You'd say, what's this? What does that mean, that he's a goodly person? It just simply means that he is fit and as it says that he's well-favored, he's handsome, we would, you know, to use the proper term for a guy. He's handsome, okay? He's physically fit and he's handsome. And it's just that, that statement's put in there. Along with everything else, he looks good and he's healthy. But that's the very thing that is going to be used by somebody else or someone else is going to hook onto in order to get joseph to fall into sin you say what's this well it's this temptation and i find it uh rather interesting that the author moses doesn't even bother to name her doesn't give her a name she's nameless not even worth wasting time giving her a name but this one who is the wife of Potiphar, verse 7, it came to pass that she cast her eyes upon Joseph. She sees that he is fit and he's handsome. And she just simply says, lie with me. In Hebrew, it's two words. Not even any sort of conversation. She just demands that this is the case. And it's a term that as people look at it is a term that is never used to describe uh, marriage or anything like that. This is a word that is used to uh, describe uh, lust and adultery. It would have been fairly common in Egypt, as you read some of the accounts, for this to happen, where you'd have slaves used in this manner and the like. But you look at this temptation and you have this pressure, and understand that's what temptation is. 
you look at the New Testament, the word temptation is translated sometimes as a trial or a test. And you say, well, what is it? It's a pressure brought to bear that makes you or forces you to make a decision, to come to a choice. In this case, what you have for Joseph is that he's confronted, and I, I would, it's not in the text, but I would argue this knowing who Potiphar is and that he's wealthy and whatever. Uh, this is not a, probably an ugly woman. This is probably a beautiful woman. So that's a pressure where she's saying, well, come and, and lie with me, and he's resisting that. She's also someone who's in authority. She's not the master of the house. She's the mistress of the house. And one has made, ironically, the statement that she, the mistress of the house, is a slave to her lust for her husband's slave. But she's an authority. She has a position of power that can pressure individuals into doing things because of her position. But I also want to just simply state this. It's not only that pressure. She's beautiful. She's someone in authority. We forget this in verse number 10. It came to pass that she spake to Joseph day by day. Temptation is continual. The force, uh, the, the pressure brought upon individuals to make a decision. It just isn't one time. I was thinking about this uh, even this morning. Was the, the, we think about Joseph and him being tempted. There, there's other people in the Scripture that are tempted, but we can think of one in the New Testament that was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Think about Jesus, he's tempted. And the 40 days in the wilderness, it's not just he's wandering around for 40 days and then suddenly at the end the devil shows up and three temptations is all he faces. But even with that, there's three temptations, pressure brought again and again. But it's 40 days being tempted of the devil. So you have to understand that being tempted over and over and over and over and over again is common even for the Savior when he was on earth. Joseph is faced with this pressure, this woman that is telling him to lie with her, and she's one that's in authority, and she doesn't stop. And we'll talk about Joseph's statement here. Even with Joseph's statement, she doesn't stop. Now, I want to put this in, and uh, I want us to just simply put uh, a marker here or something like that, and I want us to turn to the book of James. I want us to understand that temptation is not wrong. Okay? There are a lot of things out there that force us to make decisions or put pressure on us to make decisions, but that temptation itself doesn't mean we've sinned. But this passage in James chapter 1 tells us when temptation does become sin. When it becomes sin for us. When we do what we shouldn't do. James chapter 1 uh, and verse number 12, James makes the statement, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, trials, difficulties. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Okay, the Lord allows things to come into our life. Okay, even temptations from the devil, he allows those things to happen. There are many times where he doesn't allow those things to happen, but there are certain occasions where he gives us opportunity to prove our loyalty to him. 
to test. But someone might assume this, let no man say when he is tempted or she is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he uh, any man. Understand, when it comes to temptation, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13 tells us this, that God with every temptation, that God with every temptation will provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. There's never an occasion where temptation faces you and there isn't a way to escape from sin. It's there. And that's what James says, is when you have difficulties coming in your life where you're forced to make a decision and it might be a wrong decision, a sinful decision, uh, understand this, there's always a right choice in this. A right way to react, a right way to respond. But understand this, verse 14, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That word uh, there when it's talking about the idea of being uh, drawn away and enticed is a fishing term. When you go out fishing, you don't merely just put uh, worms on a hook. I did do that once as a kid, and it actually caught a fish, which, you know, kind of disproves the point. But more often than not, what you do, what do you do with a hook? You put something on it that hides the fact that there's a hook there. It's tantalizing the fish, whether it's shiny or there's something hanging off of it uh, that is attractive to it, or even the scent of some sort of food that's on that. And you say, the fish is okay until when? it bites down. That's when the scripture says here, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when that lust hath conceived, when a person's bitten down on the fact that it's okay to choose the sinful choice, it's all right, it's okay, It'll be fine. I can get away with it. Or the consequences aren't that great. Or whatever it may be. And they bite down on it and say, okay, that thing is a temptation, but you know what? I'm okay with it. It's all right. That's the point where lust and temptation go beyond the point of just being temptation. And now it is sin. And you say, well, what happens with sin? Uh, when, it, when the lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished does what? Brings forth death. It brings forth destruction. It brings forth, if you think of that term as death, as separation. It brings separation between you and God. And it separates you oftentimes as sin as it's, uh, has as a possibility. It separates you from other people that you've offended. But understand, when sin, when you're tempted, it's not the temptation I mean, the temptation may be to make a wrong choice, but it's not sin until you and your mind go, okay, I'm all right with it. I'll bite down on it. It becomes sin, and at that point, you can't do anything about it. Uh, the consequences are going to be there. Uh, it's already happened. And you say, well, what's that in going in the story of Joseph? I want you to turn back here because Genesis chapter 39 shows how Joseph doesn't bite down. 
He doesn't bite on this trap, on the pressure that's there, and make a wrong decision. You see the answer to temptation that Joseph gives in verse number uh, 8 and 9. I mean, she, th- this woman, just simply very brutish and animal like you, lie with me. That's it. You look at Joseph's statement, it goes for two verses. It's lengthy. He goes, I'm not going to do this. And you go, well, why is he not going to do this? Well, look at how he says this. He refused and, his master, his, and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth, or knoweth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? End of statement. I mean, what Joseph does is that he doesn't debate, he doesn't flirt, he simply refuses on the basis of several things. You go, well, what does he refuse on? Well, there's a visible issue at stake. He is to love his neighbor. Remember the Ten Commandments, if you were to sum them up in, in two different phrases, it would be love your neighbor and love God. And for him, as he sees this, he realizes, if I do this, I am breaking trust, I am offending my neighbor, I am not loving them. And you go, well, who's the neighbor? The neighbor is the person who's put him in this position. Potiphar, the one who's given him all the responsibility, has given him this trust. To take another man's wife would be adultery and stealing something that was not him. It would be a breaking of trust that had been given to him. It would be an offense to this man. And he kind of starts with that and he just simply says, listen, I can't do this because it will hurt my neighbor. And that is a good reason not to sin. Okay, you say, well, I don't know. It's the, some of the sins don't seem to be all... No, no. It's a good reason. Love your neighbor as yourself. You wouldn't want these things to happen to you. Don't do that to others. Don't offend others by doing this. That's the visible issue at stake when Joseph is denying this woman. But I'm going to say this, and I'll put it in quotes. The invisible issue at stake is this. A love for God. See, Joseph has a knowledge of God, lives as if he exists. And when he gets to this statement, he just simply says that adultery is this. It's an offense both against spouse and against God. It's an offense against God because it violates the boundaries the, uh, that he has placed on sexual expression. Certain things uh, in life are only fit for marriage, nothing else. And to go beyond this is a sin against God. God. I mean, he is one who has lived his life uh, as if God exists, and he just simply says, how could I offend the God who is with me and around me and has done so much for me? I have a love for him. I can't do this because I love God. You know, that, that is a, a real... <clears throat> I have people that talk to me all the time. They go, well, I've got a problem with this sin and that sin and this sin and that sin. And there are things that can be done to help people battle certain sins. 
But one way of battling sin is to know your God better. To know that He's with you. To have a love for Him. You love Him so much. You know Him so well that you wouldn't be willing to offend Him. David understood that it doesn't matter what the sin is, whether it's directed directly at God or if it's not a love for neighbor, it's still a sin against God. Remember the the statement of David after he'd been caught in the sin of Bathsheba and his confession in Psalm 51 verse 4 is this, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. You have a right to judge. I mean, he recognized this. That all sin is against God. And for Joseph, he understood this, that one cannot willfully sin against God and continue to enjoy God's presence and God's blessing. Now I will say this, that Joseph's resistance to temptation didn't just happen at that moment. Okay, all of a sudden temptation comes and he goes, oh, now, what's my plan? No, he had, he had been in a relationship with God that he knew was there and had followed him and seen his hand. Uh, and so when it came to this temptation, he already had his answer in mind. I can't sin against God. I won't do it. I would say Joseph is an example of what the Old Testament talks about. He was living in a fear of the Lord. And understand when we use that word fear, we're not talking about the fact of one who's quaking, though that is a part of the fear of the Lord, that you're afraid that you'll be judged by God. But the fear of the Lord is just simply knowing that there's a God and acting as if he truly exists, that he's a part of every aspect of your life, that he's not far away, he's right here with us, and everything that goes on is in his hand and he does these things. Proverbs points to this, and there's a passage that, uh, besides Psalm 51 and verse 4, by the statement of Joseph, you ought to write that passage down because it's echoed in David's statement, but you read Proverbs 9, and verse 10 starts with this statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. To know your God is a protection against sin, not just factually, okay? There's a lot of people that have facts about God that don't truly have a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord is both factual and experiential. A person who's observed God in their life has seen Him as a part of their life. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. And then it goes on to say this, and it's appropriate for what happened to Joseph. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. And then this statement, A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knoweth nothing. She sitteth at the door of her house, on a seat in the high place of the city, to call passenger or call passengers who go on their ways whoso is simple let him turn in hither here you have this woman of the street that is trying to beckon people in to come in and lie with her this is an individual who cries to those who are simple you say what's a simple person who has no thoughts beyond the immediate has no thoughts about god doesn't think about consequences doesn't think about results has none of that Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith unto him, Stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
But here's a person who's wise and feareth the Lord. He knoweth that the dead are there and that our guests are in the depths of hell. I mean, this passage is simply saying this, the fear of the Lord will keep you from making a mistake like this. You read in Proverbs chapter 3 that the fear of the Lord and wisdom will keep a person from the evil man and being a follower of the evil man and will keep them from the strange woman. You go, who's the strange woman? Not one that's weird. Okay, that's not what it means. It's one that should be foreign to you. And as you read the book of Proverbs, it's one who will try and tempt you over and over and over again to do things that you should not do. And what the fear of the Lord the wisdom that you receive from that, the skill in living, that if you live as if God is a part of your life, you won't be tempted to sin. You, you couldn't see sinning because uh, of what God has given to you. The book of Proverbs seems to be just simply displaying uh, or explaining what Joseph was like here. He had a fear of God and said, I can't do this. How could I sin against my God who's with me? It's a part of my life, every part of it. And for him, you see this, that you have as this, you need to be aware of the Lord's presence to keep you from falling into sin. A lot of times we sin and we aren't thinking about God. Haven't even considered him. Then afterwards we're ashamed and you're like, why didn't I think about this beforehand? Why didn't I think about my God uh, in the first place? Well, Joseph was prepared because he was always thinking and living as if God had a part in his life. He had an answer for temptation. And so you see in verse 21, or excuse me, in the verses here, that doing right will keep you useful in the Lord's work. Joseph had consequences for doing what's right. And I use the word consequences because that's what it seems like. You have this story where uh, just after she tries to tempt him again and again and finds him on occasion when there's no one else there, which is a good passage that Mike Pence, our former vice president, might have had a good mind on this, not to be left alone with somebody. So your testimony can be called into question. I mean, Joseph was working, and it's not his fault because of uh, where he was at, uh, but this woman came and found him, and when he refused, she grabbed onto him, and she grabbed his coat, and he was willing to lose a coat to keep his reputation. But the problem is, is that she used that coat as evidence against him. This woman, what she does, you read the story, she gathers the slaves together. Potiphar's not there, but she's got the ability to call in all the slaves. So what she does is she calls the slaves in and then tells the story about Joseph that he tried to attack me and I screamed and no one heard me, but I got his coat because he had taken his coat off. And so she's trying to build up witnesses against Joseph. She even tries to appeal to their, and I'll put it this way, their xenophobia, their fear of you know, outsiders. You see her use this term. It's a derogatory term in her mind. There's this Hebrew that has been brought in amongst us. And this Hebrew did this. Well, she's talking to a bunch of Egyptian slaves. 
This is a foreigner, and so what she's doing is trying to build up witnesses that hadn't even observed anything that had gone on here or heard anything that has gone on, and then she waits for her husband to come home, and she tells the same story, and she says, listen, I tried to cry out, and I couldn't do anything, but here's, here's the coat. And you say, well, what's the, the, the consequences for, for Joseph? He has a false accusation brought against him. And he goes to prison for doing what's right. Now, there is something to be noted in this story. You ought to mark it just uh, because uh, it explains why Joseph's not dead. Okay, In that culture, rape was a capital offense. You would get killed for it. Joseph ends up in prison. You read this account where this woman comes and talks to her husband and she gives him this story. Verse 19, it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, after this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And you're going, shouldn't there be something that it's kindled against? It doesn't say anything about against whom or what his wrath is kindled. It could have been that he was angered by the fact that he was going to lose Joseph, who has brought such blessing and prosperity. That could have been his anger, the frustration that now, oh, i got to start over again with somebody. It could have been that he was angry with Joseph, but more than likely, he's angry at his wife. Because he doesn't believe the accounts of what's been told to him about Joseph because he's seen Joseph so many times before and the testimony that he's had and the reputation he has, he can't believe it. But for the sake of appeasing his wife, he goes, okay, well, I'll do something to Joseph. I'll put him in prison and make it look like that he is one who is uh, responsible for this sin. But more than likely, Potiphar recognizes this is just a story that's made up. He probably has an understanding of what the reputation of his wife is like. But he still lands in prison. Not a pleasant place. It's not a good place. This is the consequences for doing right. And if you read the story, you go, well, look, doing right, it gets you difficulty. It gets you hardship. It doesn't make life easier. But I will say this, that Joseph still had his testimony, still had a right relationship with God, and he hadn't sinned and that hadn't separated him from his God. God was still going to bless him. And that's, that's what it immediately tells you right after the story. The verses uh, 21 through 23 is just simply giving you the rest of the story. You think, oh no, he ended up in prison for doing what's right. That's horrible. Nothing good can come out of that. Well, look at what it says in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And the word is said. It's the one that's used for loving kindness and loyalty. Joseph had been loyal to God, and so what's God to to him? God's loyal to him. Shows him favor, mercy. Gave him favor in the sight of the keeper in the prison, and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand. And here's that word again. All the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever he did, he was the doer of it. 
And the keeper didn't look to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and all that he, he did, the Lord made it to prosper. The, the, the keeper of the jail is just almost like Potiphar again. Look, Joseph is doing those things he's supposed to do. He's responsible. He's responsible for the other prisoners. He suddenly becomes a leader amongst those that are equals. This is kind of a theme for Joseph. He's a leader amongst his brothers. He's a leader among slaves. Now he's a leader amongst prisoners, even though they're all prisoners. And they say, this is because what? God is with him. He hadn't abandoned his God, and God doesn't abandon him. You say, Joseph was faithful to God. Yes, Joseph was faithful to God, but God was faithful to him. Now, we read these stories, and I, 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 sometimes we go, well, Joseph could do no wrong. I'm sure Joseph sinned. Pretty positive. But he was a person who, like David, when he sinned horribly, uh, was so upset at the fact of the loss of his fellowship with God. Joseph had lived his life, and he'd been fellowshipping with God. He couldn't bear not to be with God. Have him as his God, to be separated by him. My guess is he kept pretty short accounts with God when he did fall into sin, when he did fail. But Joseph doesn't seem to sin as much as others, and you go, why? Because he's one who goes, I've got a God who is with me all the time. He's observing. He's been good to me. I love him so much. Why would I want to offend him? I mean, think about this. When people in this life that you love, you don't try and do what? You don't try and offend them, upset them make them angry. You don't do that. So it is with God. Joseph goes, I can't sin. Why? Because I've got a God who loves me. I mean, when you think about the fact that God was willing to send his son, the greatest gift that he could give you, he loves you so much to give up the most that he can possibly give up. That's his son. Why would I want to offend this God who's given me so much? That's the key to not sinning. I mean, I think about the, the, the temptation, as I was thinking about it the, even again this morning, as I was thinking about the temptation of Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus was tempted, he didn't talk about his feelings. You know, how do I feel right now? None of those things. What did he do? He quoted what God said. He, was, he knew what God was like. You go, why? Because he had memorized parts of God's word. You go, well, he was God. He had memorized it. But understand, he's also a human being. And when he's being tempted to sin here, it's emphasizing the fact that he was a human being. And what is he doing? He's quoting what he knows about his God. Three times he's tempted by Satan. Three times he responds with the scripture. And I always laugh because it seems to be obscure portions of Scripture because all three of his quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy. When was the last time you quoted a verse and memorized it from Deuteronomy? But he's got this. And you go, why? Because he knows his God. He loves his God. So it is with Joseph. And so for us, guess what? Today you're going to be tempted. This afternoon you're going to be tempted. This evening you're going to be tempted. Tomorrow you're going to be tempted. And it's just going to keep coming at you, this pressure to just kind of at times go, well, you know what, it'll be all right to sin this time. Satan did this uh, to the people in the Garden of Eden. 
He kind of said, well, will God really judge you? I mean, he was questioning God's character. Well, you won't surely die. What's he saying? He's questioning whether what God says really is what God means. And then he says, well, listen, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. Well, they should have known they wouldn't be like God if they just thought about what had been revealed to them. They were created. God was never created. They'll never be like God. But they listened to Satan. They didn't pay attention and remember the things that they knew about God. And so you have the first, Adam and Eve, sin. But when you get to the second Adam, uh, Jesus Christ, he doesn't fail. You go, why? Because he had a love for his Father. He had a love for God that he would not break. And what you have in this story is Joseph doing the same thing, just being an example for us. He loves God too much. He knows his God too well. And he's not willing to break that relationship with God for a temporary fling, temporary pleasure, as Hebrews 11 talks about sin. It's got temporary satisfaction, but it's temporary. But long regret afterwards. And Joseph wasn't willing to give all that up. We ought to be like that. That we love our God so much. We know Him so well that He's been with us all this time. Why would I want to sin against Him? That's the key in resisting temptation. And that's the key to continued usefulness. That you're right where you need to be at, even in difficult circumstances that you're right where you need to be at because the Lord can still use you fully and completely. Lord, we thank you for your word. Examples like this. There may be one in here that has uh, fought with a certain temptation over and over and over again and keeps losing. there's hope there's hope for them they don't have to sin as a believer we're told this in romans 6 and 7 we're no longer under the dominion of sin we don't have to sin we have uh, all sorts of helps to us to not sin but the greatest defense is this is that we ought to focus on you that you've given us so much You've given us eternity with you forever. You've given us forgiveness for the eternal penalty for sin. That you're always with us. You're always doing things for us day in and day out. You're showing us grace and mercy. You're a wonderful God. That we ought to be able to resist temptation. We will fail. We will fail just because we're human. And we still have that sin nature that wins at times. But... We don't have to be ones who are constantly losing to temptation if we would just be ones that would focus on you. So Lord, help us to do that. Satan would love to cloud our minds or get us to forget who you are, not remember that you're there uh, and do those things. Lord, help us to not be walking through our day without thoughts of you, knowing who you are remembering constantly that you're a good God. And so Lord, help us to, as believers here, be able to see victory when the pressure comes. And it will for us to bite down, to take the bait 
that Satan lays out there for temporary pleasure because we know you're our God and we love you too much to break that relationship with you. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for you sending your Son to save us from our sins. Lord, be a God who helps us battle sin and be glory, glorifying you by living a life that reflects a knowledge of who you are. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.